Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday, November the 24th. I'm Tom Tilley, and on today's episode, we're going to brief you on the SAS Afghan war crimes report. The rules that everyone's trained in are absolutely crystal clear, and there's just no excuse for killing somebody under those circumstances. So how could these killings happen? We'll speak to an Australian who's advised the chief of the American forces. Uh, First up, Annika Smethurst is here. Annika, another border update from your life. You crossed a border again yesterday. I'd like to say I crossed two borders, Tom. Victoria into New South Wales and then, of course, across the Canberra border. Did it without having to get a vaccine or a permit. (laughs) Felt great. Was it momentous being able to cross that Victorian border back into New South Wales? Oh, it was amazing. Just to go home, I had an awesome time, but safely back in COVID-free Canberra now. All right. Well, we're starting today's show with even more positive COVID news. Let's hit it. Another day, another dose of good vaccine news. (laughs) Today, Oxford University has revealed that its vaccine is at least 70% effective. We are seeing protection not just against clinical disease, which was the primary endpoint, and there's even evidence that we may well be protecting against transmission, which is a first. That's Oxford University professor Adrian Hill, and he says it can be up to 90% effective if you tweak the dosage. So to get 90%, what you have to do is to give a half dose for the first immunisation and a full dose for the second immunisation. Yeah, that's a really curious one, isn't it, Annika, that if you actually take less of it, so half a dose the first time around, that it could end up more effective. I'm no scientist, but I'll take whatever they give me to make it effective. And look, this is good news because Australia's actually got a deal to locally produce 33 million doses of this one. Mm. Look, it might not be quite as effective as the Pfizer and the Moderna jabs we told you about recently. They're around 95% effective. However, it doesn't need to be kept refrigerated at those record cold temperatures, meaning it can probably be a lot easier to distribute. Yeah, and the other reason it's easier to distribute is that we're actually producing it here already. We started producing it two weeks ago, so that's pretty exciting as well. Um, Still on vaccines, Qantas CEO Alan Joyce has confirmed to Nine that all of its international passengers will need a vaccine to get on a plane. For international travellers, we will ask people to have a vaccination before they can get on the aircraft. Whether you need that domestically, uh, we'll have to see what happens with COVID-19 in the market. But certainly for international visitors coming out and people leaving the country, we think that's a necessity. That takes a lot of the um, complexity out of it, doesn't it? You need a jab to get on the plane. I will be first in line, Tom. Look, I don't think there's anything wrong with this. I was just thinking before the show that I had to go to Brazil a few years ago. I had to get a yellow fever vaccine. Mm. I did it. You know, it wasn't a big issue. And I know you want to get overseas Mm. next year. Will you be getting a jab in order to do that? Oh, of course. I mean, i got absolutely no reason not to, and I completely trust the scientists. So, (laughs) And I want to get on with my life. So absolutely. (laughs) There are questions around whether New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian breached her own COVID-19 rules by not self-isolating after a COVID test. Yeah, a media report alleges she was tested in her office as a precaution after losing her voice while working in Parliament last Tuesday. That was Budget Day. But she didn't go home and isolate. So in a statement, her office says she didn't actually need the test because she didn't have any symptoms and that the result was turned around in two hours. However, the New South Wales guidelines are pretty clear. If you've been tested for COVID-19, you must self-isolate, and that's what we've been hearing all along. New South Wales Jobs Minister Stuart Ayres was asked about this on Q&A last night. I think the key point here is that she's gone and taken a precautionary test, but she's not exhibiting any symptoms. She fronts the media every single day. She's lost a voice. 
probably anticipated that she might get a question. She's gone and done that. I don't think she's put anyone at risk here. Yeah, you need consistency from your leaders though, don't you, Annika? Yeah, especially when that test came back so quickly. It's not like she had to go home for two weeks. And you've got to remember, the Prime Minister is actually isolating for two weeks at the moment. After coming back from Japan, he's still managing to do his job. A group of more than 100 former Republican national security officials demanding that Donald Trump concede the election. Yeah, some of America's most senior officials from current and former administrations have penned an open letter which says the Republicans who aren't condemning Trump's actions are putting democracy and national security at risk. This comes after losing an important court challenge against the Pennsylvania result. It was his last major case seeking to throw out or block enough votes that could swing a key state in his favour. And the Republican federal judge in that case was scathing, accusing him of trying to violate the Constitution and disenfranchise 7 million voters. Yeah, here's what Trump confidant and Republican Chris Christie's had to say. His legal team has been a national embarrassment. Um, This is outrageous conduct by any lawyer, and notice they won't do it inside the courtroom. They allege fraud outside the courtroom, but when they go inside the courtroom, they don't plead fraud and they don't argue fraud. And a group of 160 business executives have also signed a letter calling for an orderly transition. It includes executives from MasterCard, Goldman Sachs and the Blackstone investment firm. Yeah, it does seem like there is a bit of a changing tide, I guess, particularly after these court challenges fail. Look, I'm surprised it's taken this long. You look at how uh, quickly in Australia people turn on their own side very quickly during leadership spills. But look, he does still have a little bit of support in the Republican Party, but it is diminishing. Yeah, well, on tomorrow's briefing, we're going to look in more depth at the court challenges from the Trump camp and how they've been going. Up next, though, we're talking about the alleged war crimes in Afghanistan. Last week, one of the darkest chapters in Australian military history was brought out into the open. This is going to be very difficult for Australians. It's going to be very difficult for our serving community and our veterans community. Uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be difficult for all of us. A four-year investigation into alleged war crimes in Afghanistan by Australian Special Forces was made public by the Chief of Defence, Angus Campbell. It's alleged that some patrols took the law into their own hands lies told and prisoners killed. Those who wished to speak up were allegedly discouraged, intimidated and discredited. So in this briefing, we'll explain what's happened and how to stop this from ever happening again. Yeah, the key revelation from this report is the alleged unlawful killing of 39 Afghan civilians and prisoners by Australian troops between 2009 and 2013. And 19 of those soldiers have now been referred to the Australian Federal Police to face war crimes charges that could see them do many years in jail. Many of these allegations relied on evidence provided by brave whistleblowers, including former soldiers, medics and army lawyers, who spoke to journalists and investigators to expose shocking revelations about what really went on in Afghanistan. Former SAS soldier Braden Chapman was one of them, and here he is speaking on Four Corners earlier this year. I had his hands up, and then it was almost like target practice for that soldier. He shot him, you know, twice through the chest and then once through the head as he walked past him. You can't shoot unarmed people and not call that murder. Yeah, so that gives you a sense of what's alleged here. And the report last week detailed two particularly disturbing practices. Blooding, where essentially younger troops were pressured to make their first kill 
as a kind of initiation ritual, and throwdowns. This is where they'd plant weapons or radios on the bodies of these dead Afghans to make it look like they're an insurgent posing a threat. To explain what's happened here, we have one of our favourite people to interview, David Kilcullen. He was an Australian soldier himself before going on to be an advisor. He rose so far that eventually he was giving advice to General Stanley McChrystal, who was in charge of the Americans and the entire international operation in Afghanistan. He lives in the US where he still trains American Special Forces troops. David Kilcullen, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. What was your reaction to the release of last week's revelations on the alleged war crimes? Well, it was a very tough read and I wouldn't say shocking, but certainly appalling when you see uh, the level of detail of what was uncovered by the Brereton Inquiry. I guess there was a reassuring element to it as well for me, which was that the Special Forces themselves and the Army and the ADF seem to have really taken the initiative in you know, lifting every rock to try to figure out what had really happened and brought some very painful things to light of their own initiative. So I think that's the one optimistic piece here that uh, it wasn't sort of dragged out of them, but they actually were willing to expose it and hopefully now to deal with it. There's been a lot made about the allegations in the report. Do you see this as rogue members doing the wrong thing or is there a deeper cultural issue at blame here? And, And if that's the case, should we be turning our blame to the, you know, top brass of the Defence Force or even ministerial level? So the short answer is yes. Uh, It's actually both, right? It's both small network of individuals who absolutely knew they were doing the wrong thing because they took steps to cover it up and threatened other individuals, uh, tried to impose a code of silence and really were acting in a way that showed that they were conscious of, of guilt, right, of what they were doing. And I think it's pretty clear from the numbers involved that that was a tiny minority of the people in Special Operations Command, about 25 individuals uh, that will go forward for prosecution. We should be really clear that these are allegations right now, okay? They they haven't been found guilty. They need to go through a legal process and um, a certain number of those people that have been accused may may turn out to be innocent, right? So it's, we don't want to presume guilt. But even assuming that everyone on the list is guilty, it's a tiny number compared to the very large groups of, of people in Special Operations Command and in the broader ADF. But there is a bigger issue, which is, you know, the question of how could this happen? And we really need to understand how it could happen so that we can make sure that it can never happen again. Do you believe that the, the people in charge of these soldiers didn't know this was happening? Well, I don't know any details of the specific incidents, but having been out on the ground in Afghanistan with similar units, um, I can absolutely believe that. I mean, this is very disaggregated, right? You you may have 10 guys in one field and five guys in another, and it's dark and people are shooting at you. And Afghanistan, the, it's, a, it's a very mountainous, and a lot of the places where we were operating were forested, or they might be farmland, and you might be you know, one compound walled away from something else and have no clue what was really going on. And I think in the moment, it's absolutely possible that people above the patrol level, so like troop commanders and squadron commanders, the officer level, would not have been necessarily at all 
aware of what was going on. It's also quite possible that people within one patrol might not know what's going on 100 yards away. If you haven't been in a combat situation, that seems kind of weird, but it is, it's not like Hollywood, right? You, you've got your head down, you're not looking around, you're focused sort of tunnel vision on what you're dealing with. Um, I think what's a bit harder to explain away or to, to understand is how, okay, after the fact, when you're back in a safe environment and you're debriefing, how come this never made it out of the the groups of people that were allegedly involved? And I think that's something that the report does look at in terms of were people falsifying reporting? Were people intimidated to not tell what they'd seen or heard about? Uh, and I think that's something that certainly Special Operations Command is taking very seriously. So, David, you're a highly respected military strategist. You literally wrote the guidebook for counterinsurgency warfare, and you were advising the International Security Force in the years that these incidents took place. Um, I've got Mm. two questions for you on this. One, I remember you telling me years ago that this war in Afghanistan would be won by drinking cups of tea, sitting down with locals, winning over hearts and minds, the trust of those people, making sure they wouldn't turn to the Taliban or al-Qaeda. So how much of these actions damage that effort? And in those situations, is it hard to tell who's who? Is there any excuse for these killings based on uncertainty around whether any of these individuals were actually working with the Taliban or or Al-Qaeda? So to answer your second question first, there's absolutely no excuse based on lack of identity. And I can say that very confidently because the inquiry deliberately excluded anything that could be considered to be, you know, bad information, bad judgment call in the heat of battle. So these are individual Afghans who have been what they call people under control or persons under control, pucks, right? So in layman's terms, um, prisoners, right? They're not formally prisoners, but they've been detained by forces. They're disarmed. They're no threat to their captors and uh, they're not combatants at that point. Uh, It doesn't matter if somebody was previously Taliban or is part of the Taliban network or has nothing to do with the Taliban. Under those particular circumstances, the rules that everyone's trained in are absolutely crystal clear. And there's just no excuse for killing somebody under those circumstances. So that one's a pretty easy one. The broader picture, counterinsurgency has what you might call a soft side and a hard side. So the soft side is all about, yeah, drinking cups of tea, but it's about making the civil government able to function. It's about building up the economy, winning people over to support the effort. It's about protecting the population so that they're not feeling threatened either by their own government or by us or by the insurgent. And that is how you win. You've got to do that and make it work. But then there's a hard side, which is that if you want all of that stuff to work, you've got to first get the enemy off your back and get the enemy off the back of the population. And you do that by disrupting enemy networks and leadership and the systems that they use to intimidate the population. So that's the sort of other side of the coin, the the counterinsurgency hard side. And that was the job of TF-66 and special forces generally in Afghanistan. So there's been 19 soldiers that have been referred to the AFP. And as you say, at this stage, it's just allegations. But I guess I wanted to ask you, where does this go now for those people identified, but also for the future of the SAS and and the need to, I guess, change that culture 
within the Defence Force? So where it goes from here, interestingly, it's different in Australia's case from, say, the British or the Americans. Americans have had a number of cases where people have been accused of this kind of behaviour and they are tried by the military, courts martial, and if found guilty, they'll go to a military prison. In the Australian system, we don't do that. So these people have been handed or the, the cases have been referred for prosecution to the Australian Federal Police and eventually Crown prosecutors and a civilian legal system will deal with that. So if anyone is found guilty through this process, they would be dealt with in a normal civilian court for the crime of murder. That's actually good from an Australian standpoint because it's much more transparent. Uh, it's also good for people that are accused because it's a, you know, it's a fair legal process. I think where we might run into some difficulties, of course, is there's still a war going on in Afghanistan. The places where a lot of these things are alleged to have occurred are contested areas where there's Taliban still present, there's still fighting going on. In some places, they're, they're a lot worse now than they were when our troops were there. So gathering the kinds of information and evidence that would be needed for a trial are going to be pretty difficult. Um, and I think we should you know, brace ourselves for the possibility that A, more stuff might come out and B, just might not be possible to secure a conviction based on just the difficulties there. In terms of the cultural issue, the army seems to be taking this extremely seriously. They've already disbanded a squadron of the Special Air Service Regiment in Perth. And I think that shows really strong commitment on the Army's part to follow this where it leads and do what has to be done in order to make sure that it never happens again. I think we should wish the Army well, right, in doing that. And I think they will do the best job they can do. But I think it's really important that there's support for that accountability from, you know, from the whole of the Australian people and from the parliament. That was David Kilcullen, former Australian soldier and now military advisor to the US forces. And his book, Blood Year, The Unraveling of Western Counterterrorism, gives a whole lot more detail about what was going on in Iraq and also Afghanistan, looks at the rise of ISIS. And isn't he amazing to listen to, Annika? Yeah, incredible insight there. And look, I was really interested to hear about the future of the SAS. There's obviously going to be some big consequences for the members. A lot of them obviously had no involvement in this, but some of those allegations, if proved, will come with, as we say, hefty jail terms, starting with 17 years or to life. And of course, Tom, what about the future of the SAS itself? Yeah, and I guess people are asking how will the culture change? And, and clearly there's lots of work that can be done But I imagine if those Special Forces troops do get those hefty jail terms, hopefully that really does change the mindset of these people. Tomorrow on The Briefing, how Donald Trump's legal fight against the election result is going. And a shout out to anyone that's posted an Insta story of them listening to The Briefing. There's been heaps of them in the last few days. So, um, yeah, it's great to see The Briefing being part of your daily routine. There's been people driving to work, dropping off the kids, people out doing exercise, chilling out over a coffee... Um, We will get a briefing mug to you if you do that. Um, And thank you so much for listening. A Podcast One production.